week we began our two-week study of the Book of Ruth. It is set during the Judges period in Israel's history, uh, when, as the very last verse of the Book of Judges perfectly sums up, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, and that perfectly sums up the state of, of Israel. And if you actually were to maybe use that statement and look at our culture around us today, perhaps it's not too dissimilar from that. And we see some of the, the most dark and horrible things happen in that season. And the problem wasn't that they didn't have a physical king, but the problem was that they didn't acknowledge God as the true king. And we all have that choice. We will all follow someone or something, whether that be ourselves or someone else. We will think about it this way. If in your life there is a throne above your head, you're going to put something or someone on that throne. And the essence of sin is when we take God out of that place he should belong and put somebody or something else there. And for the case of Israel, they put themselves there. They replaced God as king of their lives and they put themselves there. And the result was, was disaster. And then as we begin, so that's kind of setting the, the backdrop to where Ruth comes in to the narrative of the Bible. And we see that the book of Ruth, as we saw last week, it begins with death. And we see as we watch as the choice of one man to move his family away from their homeland to a foreign land ultimately ends in disaster. And firstly, we find that this man, Elimelech, he, he dies, but then he's soon followed by his two sons also die. And so his wife, Naomi, is there. She's lost it all. And as she seeks to return back to Israel, one of her daughter-in-laws refuses to go, and that is who we get this book named after. That is Ruth. And as we, as we kind of talked about, our first glimpse of hope begins with the conversion of Ruth, this widowed Moabite who chooses to follow the true God of the Bible. And Naomi returns to the home she left all those years ago in poverty and sorrow. But she has, she has Ruth, who goes out into the field and she goes to glean, which is basically to pick up the wheat that is dropped by those harvesting. And it just so happens. Do you remember that, that phrase we looked at last time? The Bible says, it just so happens that she ends up gleaning in the field that belonged to a man called Boaz. A godly man. A respected man. And it just so happens that Boaz is a relative of Naomi's late husband, which means he is a potential redeemer. He is one who could restore what was lost. And Boaz notices Ruth working in the field and he shows great kindness to her, great generosity towards her. And then this is where we pick up the story. And we see it appears that she has continued to glean in the field of Boaz during that time of harvest. And he's continued to show kindness to her. And then we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3. So if you've got your Bible, do have a look. And we're going to kind of just go through it a bit. 
Bible. It says this in verse 1. I'm just reading through from the ESV version. It says this, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Naomi is naturally worried about Ruth. She's an, an aging widow, living in poverty while her daughter-in-law is also widowed. Her daughter-in-law, who's in a foreign land without a family, without a husband. And so she does what many of us would be tempted to do in that situation. She tries to take matters into her own hands. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've entered a difficult situation or you see a problem in front of you or maybe a problem in somebody else's life. You're like, man, I just want to fix it. I just want to help. I just want to do something. And sometimes that's... The heart behind it's not necessarily wrong, but sometimes the way in which we go about it is perhaps not best. We see, we don't get any indication here that Naomi prays or seeks the Lord. We don't really see that at all, but we do see that she takes, she puts the responsibility on her own shoulders. And she devises a plan, which we will soon see is not a very good plan says this in, in verse 2 to 4, it says this, and she says, this is Naomi speaking to Ruth, says, is not Boaz our, our relative, with whose young women you were? So he is winnowing barley tonight on, at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. Here we get an example of someone, although meaning well, an example of somebody giving what we will call unwise counsel. And let me explain this way, because this is in essence what Naomi is saying. Imagine saying to your sister or to your daughter or to your friend, you know, you see that guy you're kind of interested in, how about, what I want you to do is put on your best makeup, put on your best clothes, put on something nice, and at night time, I want you to go to him. I want you to wait until he's alone, wait until he's asleep, and then as he's doing so, I want you to lie down by his feet and then do whatever he tells you. Thousands of years have passed since this event, and I'm pretty sure we can all agree that that is still very unwise to counsel. Naomi is giving counsel to Ruth that could put her in a very compromised position. And whether Boaz is a man of integrity or not, and thankfully we'll see he is, but whether he is or not, this counsel is at best foolish, and perhaps at worst dangerous. And as Christians, we need to be discerning about the counsel that we give, but also the counsel that we receive. Because, like Ruth, I'm sure we have all at some point been either A, on the receiving end of bad advice, or likewise been the giver of bad counsel, the giver of bad advice. And the Bible speaks a lot about the subject of counsel. We could spend hours talking about that. And I think the reason the Bible talks a lot about it is because it has the potential to have such impact on our lives, 
either for good or for evil. See, the people being in a position where they can give guidance, advice and counsel and speak into our lives, it has the potential for such good, but then we can also agree it could have the potential for such harm. And it is often depending on what kind of counsel we choose to keep. So here are a couple of things, just briefly, brief principles that we see in Scripture that can help us and guide us when it comes to the area of seeking counsel, of seeking advice from people. First thing is this, do not neglect counsel. It says this in Proverbs, in Proverbs 11.14, says, where there is no guidance, no counsel, a people falls, but in abundance of counsellors there is safety. And then in Proverbs 15.22, a very similar statement, the author says, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. We need those around us who can give us counsel, those around us who can help support us and guide us. There's always a temptation that we don't seek counsel at all, that we just see to do things on our own and do things in our own strength, in our what we think is best. And, and the author of Proverbs here, he warns us. He says that there's a, there's a danger to neglecting counsel because people fall and plans fail In essence, he says that we're not called to do this walk on our own. And instead of neglecting counsel, we're called to seek it out. To surround ourselves in an abundance of counsellors, abundance of advisors. Because when we do, as he says, there is both safety and there is both success. And he says that it's not just good enough having just one advisor, but have many. And then as, you, as, you, as we seek to have advisors, have counsellors, have people who we can confide in and who can speak into our lives, we then, then must also be discerning about who those people are. So first of all, gather many counsellors, but then also be wise about who you choose. In, the, uh, in, in Psalms, it says this very first chapter of Psalms, verse 2 verse, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Second thing, so do not neglect counsel, but then choose your counsel wisely. Have multiple counsellors, but make sure they're godly, because Just as there are good counsellors out there, godly people who can help and support, there are also those who are wicked. And the psalmist says that do not, don't, do not walk in the counsel of those who are wicked. Do not walk with those who who would give you wicked counsel. Because when you choose not to do that, but rather to do the opposite, there's blessing. And, And we can all agree, right, there are so many voices in the world out there, from books, from internet, from, from uh, just people around us. There's constant voices, but not all those voices are good, not all those voices are right or healthy. So we need to make an active choice to surround ourselves with godly counsel, not just a not wicked counsel. So the question is, who, who are the people 
you, who are the people who have most influence in your life? And are they godly people? And if so, and we're always in danger of seeking those just like us, right? Sometimes we seek godly counsel, but sometimes the godly counsel is somebody who is just like us, whether that be in age or in a life circumstance. But there is such, so much more wisdom in seeking somebody who's been there before. And we neglect that sometimes. But I don't want to hang out with old people at my church. I want to hang out with the young people because they're just like me. I can, they listen to the same music as me. They watch the same shows as me. But we, we, we rob ourselves and we neglect to invest in relationships with those who are older. You know, those who actually can actually be like, you know what, I actually know what it's like to be a kid. Or actually, I know what it's like to be a student. I know what it's like to be a young person at work. I know what it's like to be just be recently married or seeking marriage or unemployed or someone who's been working for a while. And these people can invest in us. They can encourage us and they can guide us. So that is, choose godly counsel, choose multiple counsel, but above all of these things, as the end of those two verses we read from Psalm hint at, above all those things, make God your ultimate counsel. Because unlike us humans, his opinion is always best. So this in Psalm 33, Verse 10 to 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. In essence, what the psalmist is saying here, that there is no better counsel than God himself. It is by his counsel that we test all other counsel. You see, uh, think about it this way, good, good, good counsel, the best advice you can get is simply God's counsel spoken through human vessels. And this is one of the reasons why the word of God is so key in our lives. We, we need this book. The book that you're holding in your hands right now or the books that we now have on our apps and on our computers you know, we, can, we have readily access to the Bible in our culture more than in, I think, in any moment in history. And it's amazing how we so often still neglect it. But rather, God calls us to cherish this word is because through his word, he not only guides us, but he also brings delight. Check out what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. And if you get a chance to read through this psalm, read through it. It's basically this beautiful a love poem to all about God's word, about what God's word is, what God's word does, how we should treat God's word. And he says this in, in, uh, in verse 24 of 119, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counsellors. The psalmist says that I, I take delight and I take counsel from your testimonies. And it's, when he says testimonies, it's the word. God's word, God's testifying, God's testimonies, as we read in his word, he says that these are my delight, but these are also my counsel. By God's grace, may we find our delight and may we find our guidance in his word. And then, through godly people who then speak his word into our lives. So back to our narrative, just a little sidestep there, back to our narrative in Ruth. 
we are called to perhaps learn from some of the mistakes that Naomi and Ruth make. And as I say, we're called to delight in God's word, and as a result, we are able to give sound advice to those around, but then we are also able to discern what is godly counsel as we surround ourselves with a healthy network of people who are able to speak into our lives, to impact us, especially in some of the most important areas of life, and especially as this kind of text talks about the area of relationships and romance. So, back to our text. How does Ruth respond to the wrong counsel given her? Well, unfortunately, she follows it. It says this in verse 5 to 6. So, she went down to the freshman floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her, and she replied, all that you say, I will do. So, she takes Naomi's guidance and she runs with it. She gets all dressed up, she heads down, to find Boaz, and we read this in verse 7. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and there she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. So the season of harvest has come to an end, and Boaz celebrates with all his workers. He celebrates all that God has provided during that season. And that is really stark contrast to the beginning of the book. Remember the beginning of the book, there was a famine in that land. And now, as a stark contrast, there is now abundance and there is celebration. From the scenes of the famine and despair all those years ago, now move to a season of celebration and blessing and success, which God, by His grace, has given them. And it is good and it is right for us to celebrate. We should be known, I think as Christians, as people who celebrate. As P.T. often says, I'm sure you remember him saying it before, we party to forget, but we celebrate to remember. You see, the way the world does partying, it is to forget, right? It's to try and have some kind of high, or something to get away from, and, for, and, and you know, how many times you have conversations with people in the world where they can't remember what happened the night before. It's like, well, it must have been good because I can't remember it. I don't think, well, to me that doesn't really make much sense. But rather, as Christians, we should celebrate differently. And we, as I say, we, sh- we celebrate to remember. We, we actually enjoy the moment. Because we're not off on something or we're not plastered or wasted, but rather we're enjoying that time with people enjoying it in a way that God designed us to enjoy. God is not a killjoy. He's a God of celebration. He wants us to have joy, but he knows what true joy is. And we, as Christians, should be known as that. Known as people who celebrate with joy. Who celebrate in a right way, because think about it, eternity is celebrating. Celebrating with him for all eternity. And this is what we see with Boaz. Boaz isn't getting wasted, much of what the world would do, or maybe what we used to do before we knew Jesus, but rather he's spending time with his workers, he's eating and drinking together. And he leaves the celebrations with a merry heart. And perhaps not the best word for us to use in our English language, because we sometimes or often associate the word with merry with being drunk. But rather this this isn't what the author is describing at all. The word that could be 
The word used here can be translated as to make well or literally sound beautiful or figuratively happy, successful, right. In essence, literally, his heart was well, his heart was happy, his heart was right. He was cheerful. And why? Why was he cheerful? Because as he looks around at, at, at that which they have harvested, that which they have taken in, he sees how God has provided. And then as he sleeps by the grain, and perhaps he's sleeping by the grain to protect his investment, but potentially, but while he is sleeping there, he has an unexpected visitor. It says this in verse 8, At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold! Every time you see a behold in Scripture, it's a big kind of take note. This is something which doesn't always happen. It's like, behold, take note, a woman lay at his feet. Guys, imagine that in the situation. You go to sleep and in the middle of the night you wake up to find a woman lying at the foot of your bed. Behold, indeed, and as we would almost like to be pretty shocked, and Boaz is also pretty shocked. And he says this in verse 9, he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, once again, guys, imagine you're going to sleep middle of the night. You wake up to find a woman lying at the end of your bed who asks you then, in essence, to marry her. Because that is essentially what is going on here. This is essentially what Ruth is saying. She's saying, look, redeem me. Which, in order to be redeemed, is, is marry me. Uh, and this is perhaps often what happens when we either try to do things in our own timing instead of waiting on God, or when we follow unwise counsels, we end up putting ourselves in compromising positions. And this puts them both in, in both an unhelpful position, perhaps of temptation, as it's late at night and they're both alone, but not only that, it also puts Ruth in a vulnerable position, where she could easily be taken advantage of by Boaz. And then even for a man of Boaz's integrity, as we'll see here, being put in such a position is just is, is unwise. And that's why, that's why boundaries in romantic relationships are just so important, especially for, for those who are seeking to pursue marriage. Because God wants to protect that kind of physical intimacy that is reserved for marriage between one man, between one woman. And as a, cap as a couple moves towards marriage, it is, is right and is healthy to set in place boundaries, to set in place uh, kind of standards or, or rules that can keep them accountable, whether that be not being alone in certain situations or sh only showing this amount of affection or just surrounding yourselves more than being alone with other people. Because, as, as we all know, in the heat of the moment, we can't, we can't trust our emotions always to do the right thing, always to lead in the right way. And it kind of, you know, when I think about that, it, it reminds me of the counsel we hear in the Song of Solomon, where the, where the ladies, they say, I adjure you, O daughters of 
Jerusalem that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And then once again, they say again, that do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. In essence, that there is a right time. And that time is reserved for marriage. So do not stir it up, do not awaken it until that time. In essence, you can think of it this way. You don't, well, think of it this way. You don't need to worry about jumping off the moving train if you never get on in the first place. You don't need to worry about, man, I'm heading towards this. I need to get off. I need to get off before it goes too far. If you never get on that route or that train in the first place. And thankfully, Boaz, though he is not a perfect man, he is a man of integrity. And he tries to navigate this difficult situation that he has been put in. He tries to navigate it with wisdom and care as best he can. He chooses not to try and stir up or awaken love, but rather he seeks to protect. So as we go through this, this is kind of we get a kind of an, a glimpse of what it looks like to be a man of integrity. He says this in verse ten. Boaz says this. He, he basically says to her, "May may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first." In that you have gone after, you have not, oh, me, you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. First thing, men of integrity are men of humility. Boaz sees the heart of her request. And although it's done in the wrong way, her, her desire to marry Boaz, her desire also to receive the redemption that comes with that for her and for Naomi, those are right desires, those are beautiful desires, and he speaks to her yet again with respect and care because he calls her daughter. He, des- he, he desires God to bless her and then he is thankful. He's thankful that instead of her going after younger men or men from her own country, she's chosen him and he is left, he's humbled by her. And then the next verse says this, And now, my daughter, do not fear, I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. You see, men of integrity look deeper than just physical beauty. They notice and they celebrate and they encourage character. They encourage and they seek after the inner beauty of a person. Which as scripture describes is far more glorious and far, and far outlives that of physical beauty. He notices her character. And in a culture where the opposite is physical beauty is is so emphasized and pushed in our culture to the neglect of what of what God really treasures, which is which is beauty of the heart, which is inner beauty, which is beauty which is beauty of character. And Boaz says, look, everybody sees, Ruth, that you are a worthy woman. And that word used in its original, the word worthy there is the same word in the original language that is used in Proverbs 31. Where it says, an excellent wife. And that word translated excellent there, when you look at the original word in the Hebrew, is the same word used by Boaz when he describes Ruth as a worthy woman. 
says this in Proverbs 31, an excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And then right at the very end of that, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Ruth is exactly this kind of woman. A woman who fears the Lord. A woman who is to be praised. And Boaz, Boaz has seen this in her. He praises her for it. And this is the type of women that we should encourage the ladies in our lives to become as men. And ladies, this is the type of woman you should be seeking to become. And ladies, this is, this is, you should be seeking to become these type of women, but then also encouraging younger women. This is what it means to be a woman. And, and, and there are so many false ideas that the world portrays of what womanhood should look like. And yet again, God says, look, come into my word. Let me show you what a true woman should look like, what a true and godly woman should be like. And she should be one who fears the Lord, one who has a character that is beautiful and goes far deeper than that of physical beauty. And as I say, this is, this is going to be radically different from what the world around us is living. But I think the world is crying out for it. It is seeking beauty, it is just seeking it in the wrong way, in the wrong place. It is desiring of a lasting beauty, but that lasting beauty is found in Christ. As he makes us and changes us inside to that which is truly beautiful and truly lasting. And back to our narrative. It seems that the stage seems to be set, right? Boaz seems to be on board for redeeming her. But it's just one last thing. He says this, verse 12, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, and yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Boaz is more than willing to redeem, but there is a problem. He's not the only redeemer available to help Naomi and Ruth. There is another. And this person is a closer relative. And the custom was that the responsibility of redeeming the family went to the closest living relative. And basically a kingdom was redeemed with somebody who could help a family member in time of need and that was often in buying back that which was lost. So often that may have been land due to poverty. A family member could buy that land back and restore it to the family. And likewise, somebody who had been widowed, a, a family, a kinsman, a relative, a redeemer could marry that person and then provide children for the line again. And we see that Boaz is that person. Boaz is one of those people in that position, but there is somebody, essentially there is somebody ahead of him in the queue. There is somebody else. And basically what Boaz says is, look, I'm, gonna, I'm willing to redeem you, only as long as this other person isn't. It says this in the next verse, Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. 
Men of integrity are humble. Men of integrity see the inside beauty of others and men of integrity are also men of their word. When they make a promise in as much as it depends on them, they seek to keep it and Boaz gives a promise which we will in the next chapter see that he will keep. If the closer relative will not redeem you, Ruth, Boaz says, I will redeem you. But they can't do that now. Because it is literally the middle of the night. So what does Boaz do? He's in a bit of a dilemma. If he lets Ruth go home now, it could be dangerous because it's late at night. But if she stays with him, there's also the temptation that something could happen. Or even just her reputation being tarnished. So what does he do? He's put in this very difficult situation. And this is what he he does. In his wisdom, he tries to navigate it. And he says this in verse 14. He, he essentially, in the verse before, verse 13, he tells us to stay. And then in verse 14, we read this. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognise another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. You see, men of integrity guard the purity and the reputation of women. You see, he doesn't kind of snuggle up with her or share a bed with her, but rather she instead sleeps by his feet. That's him guarding her purity. And when it is morning, so people don't get the wrong idea, he then sends her out early. As men, when we are pursuing romance, we are called to protect the purity and the reputation of the lady we are pursuing. And in a culture that doesn't encourage either as men we are called to a higher standard to a better standard to a more loving standard and as ladies ladies if there's a guy wanting to pursue you if he's not willing to take steps to guard and protect your purity and your reputation then you need you need to step back from this guy you need to you need to be wary of this guy you need to step away from him he's not willing to do those things because we are called to be as I say men we are called to be men who do not seek to take purity and tarnish reputation but rather we are called to be above reproach and we are called to protect those very things and we read this in the next verse 15 to 18 it says this and she said and he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And so she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, and she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. The last thing we see is men of integrity are generous. Boaz, once again, he displays his care and kindness and generosity towards Ruth, and he does this throughout the book. Boaz is known as a man who gives, not as a man who takes, he is seeking to bless, encourage, and he does that. 
And now Ruth returns home to Naomi and despite Naomi's bad counsel, God's grace prevailed. And now the, the stage is set for redemption and there is just one more obstacle to faith and this is this other Redeemer who is in the way. So what we'll do is let us read round together. You've heard me talk for quite a bit. So let's read round together. Let's read from verses 1 to 12 and then I'll read the last verses as we kind of sum up, as we read the end of this story. So Jaden, if you want to take verse 2 after me. So let's read together. So chapter 4, verse 1 to 12 and the story continues and it says, we read this, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz t- said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So he sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, My own, who has come back from the country of Moab, selling a parcel for that at the wealth of the Yeah, Elimelech. Yeah. I always struggle with that word. That name always gets me every time. Go on. Um, and I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, I redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then you tell me that I may know that there is, that there is no one but you to redeem it. And I am next after you. And he said, and he said, So then, verse 5, so just a second there, he says, so, basically, Boaz brings the elders to town and he, and he finds the other redeemer and says, look, hey, there's this Naomi and this land that needs to be redeemed and you're the closest relative. And he says, this guy first in line actually says, you know what, yeah, I will redeem it. But, Boaz then adds this in verse 5. Do you want to get verse? Says only buy the field from the hand of Naomi. You must also buy it from Misha, the wife of the dead. Sorry, I can't say that word. That's all right. The name of the dead who is in charge of it. Yeah, thank you. Well read. So basically, what what Boaz says is this, right? So he says, look, the uh, the other guy says, look, I'm going to redeem it, and then Boaz says, well, look, if you redeem it, then you know, you're kind of going to have to also marry Ruth. And you also, well, essentially he says, look, you're going to have to kind of have Naomi, and then you're also going to have to have Ruth, who's kind of this widow who's from a completely different land. And now, we know Boaz knows the kind of woman Ruth is, and Boaz wants to, to, to marry this woman, but you can kind of essentially say, you know, you can essentially say, you can see him kind of dealing with the guy and essentially saying, look, I know you want this land, but you're kind of going to have to get this bitter old woman, and also her mother-in-law, uh, not her mother, but her daughter-in-law. And it seems to work. The guy is kind of put off. You want to read the next verse for us, Adrian? Mm-hmm. Verse 6, yeah. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I bring my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, so I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. One drew off 
his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders among the people, you are the witnesses which have said, for I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and all that belongs to Chilion and to Nahum. Moreover, Your yeah, house delighted the house of Cain, from Tamar, born to Judah, because the offspring which the Lord will give you from his young woman. Awesome, thank you. And then we read this, so that is our story. And we're going to read the last bit in a second, but we see Boaz redeems Naomi and Ruth. He buys the land, he marries Ruth, and we read this in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. You see, a book which began with death now ends with life. What started with funerals now ends with a marriage. What started with sorrow now ends in joy. And, and what was that which took place in between the two? In between the death and the life, the sorrow and the joy, the funerals and the marriage, it was a redeemer. A redeemer stepping in to bring about life where there was previously death. And then we read this from verse 14. It says this, Then the women said to Naomi, so the women in, in the town said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And when the women of the neighbourhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What a beautiful ending to this account, this, this story. As I say, it starts off with death and it ends with life and rejoicing. And we see that the neighbourhood have come round, they are rejoicing and they're, man, look Naomi, you now have a grandchild. And you have been redeeming him, you have been redeemed, Ruth. He says, and, the, and, and speaking of Boaz, you see the title that they give him, like the, this, this description they give him, which is this, a restorer 
of life. Boaz is known as a restorer of life and he is a, a foreshadow of a greater restorer of life to come. Did you notice that from Ruth came Obed and from Obed came Jesse and from Jesse came David. And just to emphasise that fact even more, the book ends with a genealogy. That's actually it ends with a family tree where it says this in verse 18 as we bring it to a close. Now these are the generations of Perez and Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Abinadab, Abinadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The author of Ruth does not want you to miss this fact that through Ruth is going to come King David, who is going to be, as we know, David, David and Goliath, David who slays Goliath, a, a good king, although not a perfect one of Israel, but even greater than that, through David is going to come Jesus, through David is going to come our Redeemer. You see, the Bible portrays and tells us that we, because of our sin, are dead. We are spiritually dead and we are without hope. A bit like Ruth and Naomi, our story starts with one of death, despair, because of our sin. But Jesus, our, our, our kinsman redeemer, see, God himself becomes a man in the form of Jesus, our redeemer. And he buys back what was lost and the way in which he does that is by dying on a cross. In essence, he takes the punishment that we deserve for our sin and then rises again. And as he rises again, he offers us new life so that when we put our faith and trust in him, in Jesus, our Redeemer, he takes us from a place of death and he moves us to a place of life. He takes us from a place of sorrow and he moves us to a place of joy. You see, Jesus is our ultimate Boaz. Jesus is our ultimate restorer of life. And the way we accept such a gift is simply by putting our faith and our trust in him. And in essence, we come to Jesus and say, yes, Jesus, I want to accept your gift of forgiveness and I want to accept your gift of redemption. I love this story of Ruth because we, in, in, this, in this book, we don't, as, as we kind of talked about last week, we don't see kind of visits from angels or the audible voice of God or miraculous miracles, but rather we see the invisible hand of God at work in the, peop, in the lives of people, just as God is at work in our lives. And as we see in the story of Ruth, he brings about redemption, not just, for Ruth and Naomi. But ultimately, he brings about redemption for us. Because through Ruth, it's going to come. It's going, in essence, through this line, through Ruth, is eventually going to come Jesus, our Redeemer. So as we go to prayer, some things to, to pray about and to think about. As men, we want to we wanna learn from the good things that Boaz does and be men of integrity. 
And likewise, women, we want to learn from the good things that Ruth does. And you want to be, become, become worthy women. Women that we read of, like in Proverbs 31. And those are daunting tasks. But praise God, he doesn't leave us to do it on our own. But while as we put our faith in him, he says, look, I want to change you. I want to make you into such people. And the grace of God is such that he forgives us when we fail to be such people, but then he also empowers us to be such people. But also maybe be encouraged as well is that sometimes in the most darkest of moments is actually God is, in the, in the most darkest moments of our life, God is still at work underneath bringing about redemption. We see this with Naomi and Ruth and the big transition that takes from death to life and ultimately we see that for us in Jesus who takes us from death to life our restorer of life our kinsman redeemer let's pray together Father we thank you for this, this amazing story Lord. and as we, I pray that every time we come across it Lord that we would see you in the story that we would see us in a position of Ruth and Naomi where, we, where we're surrounded by death and that death is because of our own sin. But you, being our greater Boaz, show us kindness, show us love when we did not deserve or expect it, Lord. And then you offer to redeem us. You offer to restore life to us, Lord. And, and Lord, we, we have this promise of life or eternity with you. We have that to look forward to. But we even now, even now by your grace we can experience that life. We can experience new life now and experience joy now, even in the midst of living in a broken world. So Lord, I pray Lord, Lord that we would truly grasp what you did for us on the cross. How you have redeemed us Lord and that would stir within us a desire to be new people. A desire to be godly men. A desire to be godly women. Lord, not because we want to earn your favour, but because we already have your favour. Not to gain your love, but because you've already displayed your love to us. So Lord, I pray Lord, that, that yes, Lord, you would make us and change us into godly men and women of integrity and, and, and excellence, Lord. But, and Lord, that we would be those who would take wise counsel, but then also give wise counsel but above all those things, Lord, may we constantly come back to you and meditate and, and, and be reminded and never forget what you have done for us on the cross, how you have redeemed us from a place of death and now moved us to a place of life. May we never forget that truth, Lord. If we've not yet come to accept you, Lord, may we make that decision today. And that simply means coming to Jesus and being like, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And Lord, redeem me. A bit like how Ruth so boldly comes to Boaz and says, redeem me. We, we, we come boldly to you and say, redeem us. And when we make that, make that choice, Lord, you are always willing to say yes. And to give us the promise of eternity with you, but then also the promise of changing our lives now, of breathing life into our life now. So Father, help us to remember these things as we go away. By your Holy Spirit, help us to respond and live out these things in our life, Jesus. And once again, we say thank you for being our kinsman redeemer, our restorer of life.
In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.